You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I am Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special and esteemed guest, Dr. Joshua Cohen. So Dr. Cohen is dedicated to offering his patients excellence in clinical care. He's an expert in surgical cytoreduction and minimally invasive surgical techniques, including robotic surgery. Dr. Cohen provides a comprehensive approach to the management of gynecologic cancers, including patients with genetic mutations. We love that one of Dr. Cohen's main goals is for his patients to have the tools to be actively engaged in their decision-making in a supportive environment and to maximize cancer care and quality of life. So as you can imagine, we have a lot to chat with Dr. Cohen today about the greatest advances happening in ovarian cancer. So grab your favorite coffee. I have mine as we connect over coffee with Dr. Cohen. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Cohen, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. An honor to have you with us. It's an honor to be here, Rizzi. Thank you so much. I was just saying, I love everything that Overcome does and, and such a, a, an important platform to get the word out to patients and family members. Uh, and so truly an honor to be here today and get to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So, um, you know, I have several questions for you, but oftentimes we don't answer this question, you know, what is ovarian cancer, right? Because ovarian cancer comes in, we know that it's not one disease, there are many subtypes, etc. So when a patient is diagnosed, and we are told that you have ovarian cancer, what does it mean for the overcomer who's who's receiving this information? Um, tell us a little more about that before we get into anything else. Thank you for asking such an important question, because I think we often jump into treatments, but we don't take a step back and talk about what exactly is it that we're dealing with. And the truth is we've really evolved with what ovarian cancer is even over the last decade. As you hinted at, we used to call many things ovarian cancer. What we now know are there different subtypes, molecular signatures, different changes in DNA. And it's it's the analogy I use is, if you can imagine a Crayola, Crayola box of crayons, there are many different colors and, and we, we now treat those different colors in different ways because we're getting more individualized with personalized cancer care. So ovarian cancer for patients with high grade serous ovarian cancer, which is the most common subtype of epithelial ovarian cancer, 80% of patients with epithelial ovarian cancer have high grade serous cancer. We actually believe it comes from the fallopian tube. So what we were calling ovarian cancer for many years probably isn't a, is a fallopian tube cell that ends up getting included into the, the, the cortex or the stroma of the ovary over time and sadly turns into cancer. And we've been calling it ovarian cancer when truth be told, it's probably fallopian tube in origin. In mm -hmm. fact, if we look at BRCA mutation carriers who we know are at a unique uh, predisposition to fallopian tube and ovarian cancer, we've found the precursor lesion, the holy grail for us. The precursor lesion is in the fallopian tube and it's called the serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma or stick lesion. When we do risk-reducing surgery for patients with BRCA mutations, we are looking for these precursor lesions in the fallopian tube. Uh, now, sadly, we, are, we have not discovered a way to pick up stick lesions without removing fallopian tubes, uh, but the vast majority of patients that we say have high-grade serous ovarian cancer actually likely have fallopian tube cancer that we're calling ovarian cancer. Mm 
Now, there are other forms of ovarian cancer, such as clear cell carcinoma of the ovary. Clear cell carcinoma of the ovary, there's a chance could arise in endometriosis. Endometriosis is a very common condition for women, and the vast majority of patients will never develop ovarian cancer. But it is a subtype that we've actually identified that may arise within the implants of endometriotic cells on the ovary or other locations in the pelvis and may have implications for treatment plans. Um, and then there are, there are tumors that we do believe arise within the, the actual ovary itself. Yeah. Uh, but I think the important thing that I want to stress to people listening to this or family members, when you have a diagnosis of ovarian cancer, seek out expert opinion. Uh, you you want to be at a place like City of Hope, Orange County or a larger cancer center, have the pathology reviewed because that could have big implications for how we manage your cancer care now that we're getting so specific with different mutations that it's worth getting someone from a larger cancer center and a pathologist who's specifically trained in this to look at this tumor and tell you where did it come from, what are the characteristics of it that may help us treat you with different uh, medications. Such an important point because, you know, now we have this capability of understanding more about ovarian cancer versus a blanket diagnosis, right, that you have ovarian cancer. But the patients and the, and the caregivers, as you said, should be more empowered to ask further questions and delve into the pathology a little bit more to understand what specifically can be done in terms of treatment with the type of cancer, you know, the overcomer has. So thank you for mentioning that. So, you know, uh, we often, and talking about precision uh, treatments, we often talk about BRCA testing. We are sending out messages that you should get tested and all of those um, great things, but we don't talk much about tumor profiling when it comes to that. So can you please tell us more about this biomarker testing and how it can help detect changes in our cancers specifically to drive, as you said, the treatment decisions? And um, what is the cur current adoption rate for this kind of biomarker testing? Wonderfully important question. And there are two things I want to start with, the difference between testing of the tumor and testing of one's DNA, which you've hinted at. So there are two terms, germline and somatic. And these are important terms to know. Uh, germline is the DNA that we inherit from our mom and our dad, and it's in every cell in our body. And so whether it's a, a cell from uh, the saliva in your mouth or a cell from the skin, all of the DNA is the blueprints that come from your parents. And every patient with epithelial ovarian cancer should have germline genetic testing. You should be tested to see if you have a predisposition to cancer based on the DNA from your mom and your dad. And again, all, all cancer patients should be offered this or find a place, if you're not offered this, find a place that will. I, I will tell you City of Hope, Orange County and City of Hope does free genetic testing for all patients like this. Oh, that's right. That, that being said, the other important part is somatic testing. Somatic testing is testing the DNA of the tumor itself. And it's an important distinction because we now have a number of treatments that are being developed that are based on certain receptors, whether you test positive for them in the DNA of the, of the tumor or, or genes in the DNA of the tumor. And you may not have those in, in every cell in your body. It may not be a, a mutation that you inherited from your mom and your dad but it may have happened spontaneously in the cells of the tumor as it was dividing uh, haphazardly. Mm -hmm. And that's the most common way that cancer develops based on these spontaneous mutations in the somatic uh, DNA of the tumor. So it's really important when you're sitting with your cancer doctor or your specialist, one, get the germline genetic testing again. And if you're not offered it or there are different versions of it, you want a comprehensive panel, seek out a comprehensive cancer center like City of Hope, but also ask about the somatic testing. For instance, patients with ovarian cancer, to give you an example, the most recent iteration of a specific testing 
is we now have something called folate receptor one testing right. for patients with recurrent ovarian cancer that's platinum resistant. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means. But for patients where platinum chemotherapy is no longer helpful, if the tumor expresses folate receptor one, there's a new FDA approved drug called mervatuximab sorbentancine that there's a fairly high response rate of upwards of 33%. And so you I have a see- question down my um, list on that. We'll come okay. to that. But I'm just curious. I'm going to, sorry to interject for just a Please. second. When you are saying, when you're talking about this testing that you're recommending at just at the onset of the diagnosis, are you recommending to do the folate receptor alpha testing at the time of diagnosis? Or is it something that's uh, further down in the line? I think there are different strategies for this. Some of it depends on insurance. Sadly, insurance companies may only pay for one, one somatic testing of the tumor, uh, unfortunately. So it depends. You should talk about this with your provider. It's it's going to be patient dependent and specific. I would tell you, at, at uh, for my patients, I will do somatic testing of, of tumors in the initial setting if we if we can get it covered with insurance, which usually we can, because I think it does have implications for your, your treatment in the upfront setting. The more pertinent example is HRD testing. So okay. for all patients who have a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer, if you express a certain phenotype, uh, a certain way of, of the tumor growing, and we'll talk more about this, I think, later, for instance, the term HRD positive, you may be a candidate for an oral pill called a PARP inhibitor in the initial management of your ovarian cancer. Okay. So you should have some type of, of testing of the tumor in the upfront setting, whether it's a limited scope where they're just looking to see if you have an HRD positive score, homologous recombination deficiency score, or if you actually have a readout of the of the mutations themselves in the tumor, every patient with epithelial ovarian cancer should have this type of testing to know whether they would benefit from a PARP, PARP inhibitor in the upfront initial setting after they've finished their first-line chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So um, I am going back to my question on this biomarker testing, and thank you for all the clarification. But in, in general, what is the current adoption rate for this? How many patients, like just off the top of your head, a percentage of patients that actually do it versus not? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you a city of Orange County where I practice 100% of patients get HRD testing or some type of somatic testing of the tumor. That's the standard of care, in my opinion. I will tell you what I've seen in the community is very varied. And I see there are, there are patients who are not getting the testing. So this is my experience. But if you look at the NCCN guidelines, which we all follow, 100% of patients with epithelial ovarian cancer should at least be offered HRD testing to determine if they would benefit from a PARP inhibitor in the initial management of their cancer. Yeah, and that's sad because, I mean, I do not know about the uh, somatic, but as far as the germline, we are still at less than 35%, Is you know, despite the NCCN guidelines. So we have a lot of room of improvement and work ahead of us to change that. It's yeah. so important. And I think overcome and, and organizations like yours that help get the word out for us as providers, we're so grateful because you're exactly right. And there are disparities, and I hate things, but there are disparities in the cancer care being provided, whether someone's being cared for in a, in a low resource community setting, or if they're able to make their way to a larger comprehensive cancer center, and we, we don't want that. We want everybody to have the same experience, the same opportunities for genetic testing of their, their DNA, of their tumor, because this could be life-changing. It could be life-changing for your family. If there's a mutation, we can protect them. It could be life-changing for you. If there's a mutation, we can take advantage of to, to treat your cancer. So these are really important tests now that patients and family members should ask about. 
Absolutely, thank you. So um, there was some recent news I was reading about the Mirasol trial, um, and that has showed like a significant survival advantage of 33% compared with chemotherapy in certain patients, certain patients with previously treated ovarian cancer. And I know you talked about this just a few minutes ago, but can you tell us more about this trial, its landmarks, and why is it such an exciting news? And what our overcomers should know in general about ADCs and that is antibody drug conjugates and, and its evolving role in treatments in platinum resistant ovarian cancers. Yes, very important and, and really a wonderful study and the data that's come out, Dr. Ursula Machelonis and team should be congratulated for doing some of the initial larger phase two work in this, looking at mervituximab sorbentancine. Uh, an antibody drug conjugate has been described in many ways. One, one way to think about it is a Trojan horse, Another way to think about it is as a smart bomb. But what it does is that it's it's basically a way to get a certain drug to specific receptors in the body where the cancer cells are. So if, if the cancer cells express a certain receptor, this drug targets it. It goes straight to those cancer cells and then releases a very condensed high amount of, of treatment of, of, of chemotherapy or another targeted drug at that specific site. So it's meant to, to be toxic to the cancer cells, but still try to minimize toxicity to other cells. One of the challenges with chemotherapy is that it, it works well because it travels in the blood throughout the entire body. The challenge is it also has a fairly big impact on healthy cells as well. And as we develop antibody drug conjugates, these smart bombs or Trojan horses, it gives us a way to be a more, uh, a more focal way to attack cancer cells without necessarily causing as much off-target harm to healthy cells that don't express those receptors. That being said, there's still side effects and toxicities that we need to counsel patients about. Uh, so the, the trial that you just mentioned, Mirasol, the data is really very impressive. Folate receptor one is a receptor that's expressed on the majority of, of ovarian and fallopian tube cells with cancer. And that's an important thing. So sorry about that. That's an important thing because it really, what it does do is it allows us to target those cells at a higher click. And so Mirasol looked at this drug, Mervituximab sorbentancine, that is based on the folate receptor one. And so patients should talk to their providers about whether they've been tested for folate receptor one. Mm -hmm. You have to have a certain level. So in the study, you have to express the, the folate receptor at a high level in the tumor, uh, meaning that it has to be above 80% uh, of, of the cells have to stay positive for the receptor. But if you do, there's a good chance that you'll respond to, or a better chance that you'll respond to this drug. And when we look at the different options we have for patients where platinum chemotherapy is no longer effective, meaning that the, the standard upfront drugs are not, as, not working as well, uh, with a 33% response rate, that's quite high. And this is a drug that has fa a fairly good toxicity profile, meaning that really outside of some eye toxicity where you get some blurry vision that can be improved with eye drops, many patients have a fairly low rate of toxicity for a drug that has a high impact to treat a, a, a tumor that's growing. And that's very promising, but uh, the key points that you mentioned is not everyone will benefit from this, even if they're platinum resistant. So the first step would be to get tested for the folate receptor alpha. If they are positive in those situations, um, this drug has some potentially magical benefits that they can... Um, but also, I, I uh, was talking to Dr. Matt Lonis, is obviously, uh, she's the uh, PI of the study, and she was also saying that... Um, that probably 30 to 35% of patients may benefit from overall uh, may benefit from this. So, which, you know, to me, that still leaves 
the majority of the platinum resistant patients still asking for answers for you know more therapies so in terms of the antibody drug conjugates do you see i mean i'm pretty sure there's more you know combinations evolving and emerging in the future but how do you see this the adc's kind of you know improving in its own ways to include more of the uh, platinum resistant population very important question. And I, I want to take a step back and mention that the Mirasol study was based on folate receptor high expression. We do have data that even if you test positive for folate receptor one, but it's not upwards of 80%, you may still benefit from the use of that drug in combination with a drug called Bevacizumab. And that data is from the forward one study. And so, uh, and that was just published uh, with, uh, uh, I think a couple months ago, um, and uh, really important data that's now in the NCCN guidelines that mervituximab, sorbitanzine, and, and bevacizumab is an option for patients, um, even if they don't express uh, a high rate of 80%, if it's anywhere between 25% or more, you would still be a candidate and have a reasonable response rate for this drug with a combination of, of bevacizumab. And what now percentage of patients would that be? Upwards of about 20% or more, which is again going to be consistent with when you look at platinum resistant cancer and what we have to treat those patients with standard chemotherapy, it's going to be in line with those other chemotherapy options. So, when we think about what options we have, as you just mentioned, for patients who have platinum resistant ovarian cancer, uh, we do have options which include standard chemotherapy. Now, in addition to that, we have mervituximab sorbentansine. So, this is still an option for patients. They do have to express it. That study with the inclusion criteria, you had to have at least a 25% uh, positivity rate on the, IA, the immunohistochemical staining, meaning when they look at the cells under the microscope, at least 25% of the cells had to have the receptor expression. Uh, but to, to answer your bigger question, where are we going? The analogy that I use with patients is HIV. We live here in Southern California. Uh, as I said, I work with City of Hope here in Orange County, but everybody knows Magic Johnson in Southern California, an LA Laker, very beloved. When he was diagnosed with HIV in the early 90s, we had nothing to offer. And everybody thought that this gentleman was going to pass away. He's living a long, happy, healthy life because we made HIV chronic with antiretroviral medications. Now, we're not quite there yet with ovarian cancer and fallopian tube cancer, but we're getting there. We're getting to the point where we may not be able to cure cancer if it's come back. But we talk about durable remissions. We talk about keeping the cancer volume at a low disease burden and living your life. And, and we adjust with those medications. And that's where I hope we're going with ADCs, that, that it's another tool in our armamentarium to treat patients with recurrent ovarian cancer, uh, to give them another option outside of standard chemotherapy or PARP inhibitors. Uh, we have other molecular targets that we are working on. Uh, the, the place that I think we're going with this is, is going to be in, in the, also in the upfront setting too. We actually uh, are looking at the use of ADCs in, in, as maintenance strategies for patients with an initial diagnosis. I know we'll talk about this a little bit later. We're opening up a larger study here at City of Hope, Orange County, that's part of a national or international trial called Gloriosa, looking at mervituximab sorbentansine in the platinum recurrent setting in an earlier paradigm outside of platinum resistance. But when patients are still responding to platinum drugs, adding mervituximab as a maintenance drug, uh, and that's going to be an ongoing study that will be available at many centers, including City of Hope. Uh, but uh, I do think this is an important step. ADCs are going to be another important tool. We have many other important tools, including immunotherapy, including hormonal therapy. So it's an exciting time for patients with gynecologic cancer. Uh, I really think that we're, we're, we're at the threshold where we're going to have many new options that we did not have even 10 years ago. Absolutely. Not even five years ago. It seems like it's just, you know, it's amazing to see the progress. And thanks to thanks to all the great work that you all do as physicians and researchers to take us 
maybe for many of us it's slow but it's definitely moving in the right direction so thank you so yes we we want to talk a little more about the um, hr proficiencies that you just mentioned in one of your earlier answers so uh, what are they or those and and how can you tell us you know more about the kinds of the types of hr proficiencies out there and what kinds of treatments are available based on the um, what is like hr D positive versus negative, what do you do with that information? Why do you get tested? And what should our overcomers know? And, you know, in terms of advocating for themselves. An extremely important question. And this dovetail, dovetails very well to what we what we talked about earlier about germline and somatic testing. Right. Uh, but but HRD, it's a pathway. When our cells and our cells are dividing all the time in our body, every every moment of, of our lifetime, cells are, are dividing and replicating. And it's an amazing blueprint that that DNA gets reproduced accurately. What, what needs to happen is a very, very mechanistic way to keep uh, abnormal blueprints from causing haywire, which is cancer. And homologous recombination is a pathway that our body uses as checks and balances to prevent those, those abnormalities in the blueprint. For patients who have homologous recombination deficiency, it means there's an error in that pathway that resulted in some of the mutations that can contribute to cancer. An example is BRCA1 and 2. When there are mutations in BRCA1 and 2, um, there, there can be strategies where, where cancer cells grow because of that deficiency. Uh, PARP inhibitors, which are oral pills, take advantage of that. Um, when, we, when we're testing patients to see, will they benefit from an oral drug called a PARP inhibitor, we're trying to see, do they have that, that deficiency in repair of homologous recombination? Do we have that loss of that mechanistic repair where the blueprint is going awry? If it's growing, going awry, we can give them a drug that basically stops the cancer cells in, the, in their tracks. They have a way to go around this, this error. But if we can give them this oral drug, it's called synthetic lethality, where we basically can kill those cancer cells at a higher rate. When we talk about patients with ovarian cancer or fallopian tube cancer, everybody should be tested for BRCA1 or 2. These are genetic mutations. But in addition to the actual loss of the gene, the function of the gene, we know that there are other pathways that can cause homologous recombination deficiency that are not BRCA1 and 2. About 50% of women with ovarian cancer will have homologous recombination deficiency on some level, whether it's other genes or, or the pathways for those genes. And we know that those patients will, will benefit from a PARP inhibitor, that their cancer will likely respond to a P, PARP inhibitor. So we want to find those patients. And in the past, we were not good at that. A lot of companies have developed different ways of testing for homologous recombination deficiency. And I think you should talk to your provider. Every institution probably has their own, whether it's their own test or maybe the, the company that they're used to using. But many of these companies test on different levels. And, and I think it's a matter of just talking to your cancer doctor and saying, hey, what test do we use? How do I know if I would benefit from a PARP inhibitor? Have I been tested for homologous recombination deficiency? If you have and you have a new diagnosis, you should ask about a PARP inhibitor as a, a, a maintenance drug to be on after you finished your initial chemotherapy. Now for patients who, are, it's also important to know if someone has, is homologous recombination proficient, HRP. Mm -hmm. If someone is homologous recombination proficient, we know that they're, they may or may not benefit from the use of a PARP inhibitor. There are drugs that, that do have FDA indications. So an example is the drug Neraparib. Neraparib is FDA approved for all patients with epithelial ovarian cancer, and there likely is benefit for patients who are homologous recombination proficient, 
uh, it, the benefit is less than if they're homologous recombination deficient. But it's important to know whether you are HRD or HRP, so to speak, because it has implications, again, for what drugs you may or may not benefit from. As a physician, as a surgeon, as a cancer doctor, the last thing that I want to do is give you a drug that has side effects where you're not going to benefit. Uh, the first rule we have is do no harm. And, and one of the ways we can accomplish that goal is knowing whether someone has a molecular signature that they'll benefit from a drug or not. And, and the testing that you've just mentioned is, is an important step to figure that out for patients with a new diagnosis of ovarian cancer. That's wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Cohen, for walking us through this, because, you know, oftentimes with this diagnosis, it can be so overwhelming that, you know, for the not just the patient, but the, the caregivers and the family members, we often get derailed on, you know, or just don't know what questions to ask or learn or know more about. So sounds like all these things should be a part of our conversation with our physicians and, and our healthcare teams on the on the tests that need to be done uh, for us to move forward forward with the kinds of treatments. So thank you for, for your clarification. So um, you, you briefly mentioned about the trials that are ongoing at the City of Hope. So um, tell us tell us more about what you may be involved in or running or uh, in terms of trials and what should our overcomers know? And if there, if there are any interesting trials that are open right now, how can they sign up for it? Thank you. And I want to say, I think it's so, so important to get the word out. And, and I want to thank you again for having, having me on today. What I would say for patients initially is advocate for yourself. It's okay to ask questions of your provider. It's okay to get a second opinion. When we think about life in general, when, you look, when you're look when you looking at a mortgage on a house or looking for a new car, you rarely take the first opinion and say, I'm going with that. And it's okay. As a cancer doctor, I understand that you may want more opinions. Knowledge is power. It, I feel confident in my decision and my thought process with patients, but I, I always am okay with people seeking out other options. And, and that comes with clinical trials. We know that patients, there was just some data I think published or presented at the Society of Gynecologic Oncology annual meeting that patients uh, who are enrolled in clinical trials actually live longer if they have platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. Yeah. And, and, and that's because you're having the option of being, being exposed to the latest and greatest drugs. Now, clearly clinical trials exist for a reason because we're trying to determine if a drug has true benefit or not. Uh, it's gotten to a certain point in the, in the trial pathway because it's showing some benefit, but we really have to quantify that benefit for patients. And it may or may not be the right time for you to be on a trial, but if you have recurrent cancer or, or you're dealing with um, a tough diagnosis, I would talk to your provider about trials or again, seek out a comprehensive cancer center like City of Hope where clinical trials are available uh, to discuss what may be there. Um, we have many trials that we've opened. My focus is gynecologic cancer, so ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, cervical cancer. I think one of the unique things about City of Hope, there are two, a couple of unique things in addition to, the, to many clinical trials. Um, one, one would be a, a Dr. Lorna Rodriguez, who's one of my colleagues in our division, uh, is looking at the use of CAR T-cell therapy. CAR T-cell therapy is really using the immune system and retraining it, and, and it's something that City of Hope has many years of experience with, has been a pioneer in and the benefit of CAR T-cell therapy in ovarian cancer. She's, she's evaluating that. Now, CAR T-cell is still experimental for ovarian cancer, uh, but, but there are trials available and, and they're open here at City of Hope and there are other trials opening up nationally and internationally. So that's a, a, new, a new treatment modality for ovarian cancer. It's in the very early phases or early stages, but something for patients where if it makes sense and it's the right time to, to talk about it and ask about it. And again, City of Hope is, is one of those cancer centers with a significant amount of expertise in CAR T-cell therapy. Another example is one of my colleagues, Dr. Don Dellinger here at City of Hope is looking at PIPEC. PIPEC is pressurized delivery of chemotherapy directly into the abdominal cavity. 
where it's an aerosolized spray that is delivered surgically with into the abdominal cavity for patients with peritoneal disease. There are just a handful of centers here in the U.S. that do this. City of Hope is one of them, and it's a clinical trial. But for patients who may benefit with, with disease that's within the peritoneum as far as ovarian cancer, that may be a unique option or clinical trial for you. Again, it's not for everybody, uh, but she's worked really hard on this, and we've got a lot of, a lot of important data coming out both here and in Europe about PIPEC. Um, heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy is here. It's here to stay. It's here in the U.S. and internationally. And we do heated chemotherapy very well here at City of Hope. We do it commonly, and that's not necessarily a clinical trial, but another thing, another thing to talk to your provider about. Now, it doesn't make sense for every patient, but but something that you should at least discuss with your your cancer doctor uh, whether you'd benefit from heated chemotherapy in your management strategy, and at least in the upfront setting or initial management. And then we have some really exciting trials. As I mentioned, we're, we're going to be opening up Gloriosa, which is the, the larger national international study looking at the use of mervituximab, sorbentancine in the maintenance setting for platinum-sensitive patients. So that's coming down the pipeline, and we're excited about that. We're also opening up a, another large cooperative group study looking at uh, the use of uh, a glucocorticoid uh, receptor inhibitor uh, and, and a braxane in combination. Uh, the drug is relacorrelant. Re and so that's going to be opening up shortly here uh, at City Pope, Orange County, and City Hope, and as well as internationally. So we're, we're, we are opening up a lot of the larger cooperative group trials because these, in addition to having many phase one trials, phase one is the earliest form of a trial when the cancer drug is just getting off the ground. And City Hope actually makes many drugs. And so we have a lot of phase ones. We also have a larger number of phase two and phase three trials where these are drugs that have been vetted and, and have already made their way to the point where we're looking at a larger population-based study. And I think you want that. You want to have the options of phase ones, phase twos, phase three trials for patients. So depending on where they are in their cancer treatment course, they may or may not qualify for certain trials based on the drugs that they've already been exposed to. Yeah. And, and thank you for uh, mentioning that. And I'll add to what you just said, because uh, that, that was a lot of information that Dr. Cohen just gave us. So now if you're wondering, how do I search for the clinical trial? And I want to know what, what um, Dr. Cohen is running, or if there is anything he's running, then how do I do that? So I have an answer for you. Um, we recently, Overcome has launched this clinical trials uh, finder on our website. So all you have to do is just go to your to our website and just find all the ovarian um, and family clinical trials on our website. You don't have to go to clinicaltrials.gov and get lost in that whole space. So you can search by investigator. You can search by um, the time of the trial opening. You can search. It's a very simple and friendly. And we also have a friend for you named Ovea who's waiting there for you to take you through this journey. So to check out the clinical trials finder that we have on Overcome, um, just to complement what Dr. Cohen said, because our goal is to make it easier for you every day because you know, you should not be spending time or wasting your time and resources doing something that could be done easier. So check that out on our website. So anyway, back to my question. So, um, you know, I was reading about this shortage of chemotherapy drugs. Okay, that is alarming. So I was reading that it could last for several months and possibly longer. So when overcomers see information like that, I mean, it, it can be very challenging, right, to see something like that on, on press. So can you tell us more about how overcomers should navigate all of this information and what questions should they be asking about how it may or may not impact their ongoing treatment and uh, what is the extent of shortage and what should we know about this? 
Yes, and so we we as providers are also impacted and concerned by this. I, I want to say that the Society of Gynecologic Oncology has put out a statement about this uh, under uh, the leadership of uh, of our uh, clinical practice committee, and we are aware that patients are concerned too. I, I would say you should discuss this with your provider. It's not impacting patients at the moment, but we 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 also do not know how long the shortage will be here. We are planning for this, and there are other alternative drugs that have similar efficacy for patients, depending on the drug of choice that they're they're being treated with, as far as carboplatin or cisplatin. And uh, I think it's an important discussion to have with your provider. The other thing is that if if perhaps you're at a location where there, unfortunately, is a limited resource of that drug, there may be the option of of getting treatment at another location, depending on where you live, and and that's where your provider can work with you to find potentially another cancer treatment center or location where they do have uh, the drug available. Uh, but I think it's important to know that we will have other options for you, uh, that we do have other drugs that have efficacy in the treatment of ovarian cancer. And we're all hopeful that we'll be able to get through this uh, you know, quickly and, and not have it impact anyone's patient care plan. But all providers are aware. I can tell you City of Hope, we're, we're planning ahead for this. So we, we have reserve. Uh, I know other cancers are doing the same where it makes sense. Uh, but certainly something that we're acutely monitoring. And, and I think you should have a very open dialogue with your provider if, if you uh, have concerns or this has come up for you with family or friends. And it's okay, again, to ask them if, if they do not have the drug available, can they help you find a location that does have that drug? Thank you so much. So you talked uh, briefly about immunotherapy. And so, you know, it it's keeps uh, becoming like a moving target, right? As far as ovarian cancer is concerned. So do you think in your opinion that immunotherapy will eventually, eventually shift the treatment landscape in ovarian cancer, despite the slow start that we have seen um, for ovarian? And so tell us about any promising treatments in the horizon when it comes to immunotherapy for ovarian cancer. Yeah, again, an important question. And we've seen immunotherapy really change the paradigm for endometrial cancer and that there were some articles recently published about the use of, of immunotherapy in the initial management of endometrial cancer, uh, which is uh, Dr. Mirza and Dr. Eskander's studies, really practice-changing studies in New England Journal of Medicine. Ovarian cancer is a different tumor. It's a different entity. And, and immunotherapy by itself is likely not the answer, at least not one drug. And I hearken back to my analogy with Magic Johnson and HIV. HIV was not, was not cured or, or not managed with one antiretroviral drug. It's a cocktail of drugs. And I think where we, where we ultimately will go with immunotherapy and ovarian cancer is not one drug, but, but either a sequential or combination of drugs, whether it's with two different immunotherapies or an immunotherapy in combination with something like an oral pill, like a PARP inhibitor. So I think it will play a role in the management of ovarian cancer. The immune system is, is an extremely effective uh, way to treat cancer if harnessed appropriately. Uh, we just not, have not yet unlocked it in ovarian cancer the way that we want to. So I think the future is bright. It will be there. It will play a role. It won't be the only thing that we're going to use. We're going to need to incorporate other things. I mentioned CAR T-cell therapy. Again, CAR T-cell includes immuno, is part of immunotherapy. Uh, we're, we're hopeful we'll get there. If you look, it took many years to get to the point of using immunotherapy and cancer treatment. And from the time it's been used over the last maybe five to 10 years, we've made leaps and bounds in many different tumor sites. So every, every month, every Every meeting, we're seeing new uses of immunotherapy, new drugs come out for the use of immunotherapy in ovarian cancer. So I think the future is bright. We're not quite there yet where, the, where it's ready for prime time, where, where it's going to be the, the, the one answer. But there are some regimens. An example is a combination of uh, cyclophosphamide, bevacizumab, and pembrolizumab, which was a phase two study. Dr. Zirdos, uh, uh, one of my colleague, wonderful colleagues out of Roswell Park, published this uh, a couple of years ago 
where the where that regimen has about a 30% response rate for patients with recurrent ovarian cancer and can be very effective. Um, we still have challenges, unfortunately, with insurance coverage for certain patients. And so this is something where you it's important for you and your provider to advocate if, if they feel important, this regimen is important. The NCCN guidelines also there are patient access opportunities with different pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but to get back to your answer, I think immunotherapy will be here for, for patients with ovarian cancer. We're making progress. It's not, it's not the be all end all at the moment, but it will play a role. Wonderful. Thank you. So um, just uh, switching gears and talking about artificial intelligence, right? Because that's another hot topic these days and not only just uh, in everything, like in medicine, in education, in financial planning, in you know, in the business world, everywhere, right? So, um, so where, what, what, how do you see the role of, you know, an AI or you know something like a Chat GPT for for the lack of a better term? I know there are many others in the making. So, how how do you see it overtaking, like taking over rather not overtaking or taking over medicine in the near future and um and share and i know that this is your perspective only but just from uh, coming from an expert's uh, viewpoint what are the prom the challenges as well as the promises that you see when it comes to artificial in intelligence uh, partnering with medicine and delivering excellence in care yes Thank you. This is near and dear to my heart. I've actually done a reasonable amount of research in artificial intelligence, and uh, we've had, we've had some successes. And there's currently an ongoing trial looking at artificial intelligence that I've started with my colleagues at other institutions. And I think the it's going to play an important role for cancer care in general. I think it's going to play an important role in different aspects. So one aspect is the patient journey. Uh, for ovarian cancer patients, we now know that upfront surgery isn't for everybody. That depending on how you present. You may benefit from chemotherapy first um, or other drugs. You may benefit from surgery first. And can we use artificial intelligence to help guide you? Can we use artificial intelligence to help determine whether someone should receive chemotherapy or surgery first? Likely, yes. The other thing is it's now much more complex when you make a treatment decision. So in the setting of recurrent cancer, it's no longer one chemotherapy drug. We have 10 to 15 different options for you at any given time, depending on where you are, at least in the initial recurrent setting, what we should use to treat your cancer. And we as providers are really experienced and, and we spend our careers trying to find the right drugs at the right time. But can we incorporate artificial intelligence to get more accurate, to be more evidence-based, to, uh, to be more thoughtful about potentially new drugs that are coming out? And the answer is yes. So we've developed ovarian cancer pathways that we're actually researching with artificial intelligence. And can we guide patients on their journey from their initial diagnosis and, their, and the management strategies also managing the toxicities. Artificial intelligence may be able to help us do that. If someone's having worsening nausea on a PARP inhibitor, we may be able to guide with artificial intelligence which nausea medication has a better chance of working for that patient than, than otherwise. I think the challenge we face is the data that we have available for the artificial intelligence. The electronic medical record is very powerful, but it's really hard to get systems to put things in the same language. When you talk about artificial intelligence, it all has to be coded the same way to right. make the right conclusion. Right. And even though we have the electronic medical record, one hospital may enter in data differently than another hospital. Mm -hmm. And we just talked about tumor testing. Depending on the company that your tumor is tested at, that data may get entered in differently or not at all into the electronic medical record. So when you're asking your artificial intelligence to generate a recommendation for a patient based on mutations and, and tumor profile, it's almost impossible to do that accurately if the data is not, not entered the exact same way. Right. So I think that one of the challenges we face is, is uniformity. 
with all the different companies and all the different HRD testing and somatic testing, how can we get that data in a common language that if we have an artificial intelligence program, we can start generating recommendations that are consistent um, and then knowing where to focus that artificial intelligence as far as the, the patient care pathway. Does it live in the electronic medical record? Does it live on your phone? There are a lot of issues with HIPAA uh, and privacy, and we know that that's real. And so artificial intelligence is very powerful. And, and are people willing to accept that with artificial intelligence, some of their data will be managed perhaps on a cloud somewhere to, to generate recommendations. Uh, yeah. Larger health centers are very worried about this. And, and I hate saying this, but they're very concerned about the backend repercuss repercussions if that data is stored in a place where it's accessed, you know, unfortunately, inadvertently uh, by uh, by someone that shouldn't. And so so I think data safety monitoring and then the the quality of the data in a, in a common language are the two things we're going to face. But artificial intelligence is here, and I think it's going to be there to treat patients that we, we're going to need it because as we develop more drugs, it's humanly impossible to expect that a physician is going to sit down within a 15-minute visit with a patient in, in 10 years and have 30 different drugs and be able to pick the exact right drug at the right time with that patient's tumor profile without a little bit of guidance. You'll still need the physician. You'll still need the medical professional, but it's, it's going to be helpful to have that AI in the background maybe giving you a list of drugs that seem to make more sense. Uh, we're not there yet, but it, we, will, we will get there. And and thank you for uh, breaking it down for us. And one of the things that I've always wondered, you know, and I've asked this question before on, you know, one of our previous episodes is um, there are certain patients, right, that that let's say get diagnosed with stage 3C ovarian cancer, pretty advanced, but they have no recurrences 10 years later or 12 years later or 15 years later, there's no recurrence. But then there are uh, patients that who get diagnosed with earlier stage disease, like one or 1A or 1B, 1C, but they, they recur after a few years. So what is happening here? I mean, what is have? So my question has been that are we following those patients that have not recurred despite being diagnosed at a very advanced stage and maybe perhaps something like an AI to your point can based on the data and yes there will be a little bit of data sharing but then there could be a predictive pattern that AI could pick up uh, from this that you know by following these patients and trying to understand and bringing it to the forefront for the physicians to come up with some sort of a plan or like a I don't know, a uniform, you know, preparation for all the patients to never recur. I mean, you know, so all, there are possibilities that AI could potentially help so much in, a, in spaces like these, which are gaps which have not yet been answered. So completely yeah. agree. And I think what you're identifying are we call them exceptional responders, uh, yeah. where patients have an advanced cancer and they never recur. And uh, I think what you're describing is that we don't we have not unlocked all the details of tumors. That's we have not we, we don't yet understand. So we know that the, what the I mentioned the Crayola crayons when we started talking, the colors are only one part of the crayons. So we, we just have we don't know what what actually is in those crayons that make some go haywire and and, and and some not. It's why some stay there and some go away. And and we need to figure that out. That and that may not be one thing. It may be partly how the immune system works. It may be partly how the the cells are replicating when they receive the drug that treats them. And, and so we, we know that we have not yet under, un, been able to grasp why some patients with early stage cancer recur and some patients with late stage cancer never recur. Right. Um, what, I, what I can say is a promise. It's a promise from me and doctors like me is that we know this and we want it to be better. And when, every day we wake up, we're trying to figure that out and make it better. And we're making progress. Artificial intelligence will help us with that. Um, exactly. and, and I think when you talk about, again, the advances that we've made in the last 
five to 10 years, just looking, uh, it's quite impressive. And if you take that and think about the future, um, it's an exciting time, but we, we want those answers. And I think you point out a, a very astute observation. We need to really delve into those. And the NCI, the National Cancer Institute, does look at these exceptional responders. And they've, they've also tried to figure out exactly why it is that they've not recurred. Um, I think the answer is going to be more than one thing. Again, it's, it may, it's not going to be one specific sure. mutation that we're missing. It's going to be something, the term is epigenetic, where there, there are environmental changes that happen outside of your the DNA or the blueprint that cause certain things. But there's going to be maybe a couple of different things, two or three different things that, that result in these exceptional responders that we have not yet identified. And once we do, we're going to make a bigger dent in, in helping more patients get to that point. Exactly my point. You can we can take that information and then project it out to the rest of the population, and and somehow you know, I don't know, maybe prevent cancer or cure ovarian cancer. That's where we are all working towards, right? So, um, so now you know we talk about. This is another curious question I have that, you know, we typically talk about breast cancer morphing into ovarian cancer, ovarian cancer uh, developing into a secondary breast cancer. Those things are common. It happens with especially the BRCA mutation carriers. So now, as far as other kinds of cancers uh, arising from ovarian cancers or other kinds of cancers um, resulting in ovarian cancers other than breast, um, what is what is the data that's out there in terms of is it can endometrial or cervical or colon or wh whatever like can develop into a secondary ovarian and i also know that uh, prolonged parp usage can lead to aml so can you talk a little bit about all these secondary cancers that can develop uh, from ovarian or cancers primary that can develop into a secondary ovarian other than breast Yes, so I think two aspects to that question. So I'm going to answer the 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 drug the PARP inhibitor question first. Okay. Uh, when we look at certain drugs that we use to treat cancer, as you point out, sometimes there can be downstream repercussions that can actually cause a, a different cancer because cancer treatments work when they impact the DNA of those cancer cells, but they can also cause changes to normal cells. PARP inhibitors have been around actually now for about 15 years, and we actually have really good long-term follow-up. Solo one, which is uh, a trial, Dr. Katie Moore was the lead author on this study that was practice changing for women with BRCA1 and 2 mutations who had Olaparib as, a, as an oral pill to maintenance strategy uh, after their initial diagnosis, really showed that PARP inhibitors are safe and that, that there is a small risk of, of, of blood cancers, but the risk is still very low, meaning that if you take patients who've been on Olaparib for two to three years and you follow them out for seven years, the risk of developing leukemia or, or, or a myelodysplastic syndrome is going to be three to four percent which is going to be equivalent to those who were not necessarily on a PARP inhibitor. So we are we are getting some more data that shows that PARP inhibitors likely are safe. Like any drug, there is a risk. But I would tell you, as as a, a doctor and also someone, if it was it was a patient and I was making the decision, if someone said we have a drug that could treat your cancer and have a really good response rate, but the risk of developing a secondary cancer is three percent, I'm still going to likely use that drug. So I think it is a shared decision making approach. By all means, we have to talk about these risks and acknowledge them. But uh, we also have to realize that we're dealing with a, a cancer that can be aggressive and challenging to treat in and of itself with ovarian and fallopian tube cancer. So I think once patients have that, it's it's really up to them and their doctor to make that shared decision-making uh, approach uh, work where, doc, you know what? 3% is too high for me. I'm not going to use the drug. Or, wow, 3% is really, in my, my book, pretty low. I want to go on the PARP inhibitor. So I think we have to just go into it eyes wide open and know that there is this risk. But it seems to be overall safe, and the risk is is fairly low. And I would say I would be okay with that risk profile if it were me or again or 
as a patient making that decision. Mm -hmm. Now, to, to, to answer your second question, does ovarian cancer morph into other cancers? I don't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as morphing into, I would say the genetic predisposition. So we know that patients with ovarian cancer have mutations in their DNA, like BRCA1 and 2, or there's a, a condition called Lynch syndrome with yeah. MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, PMS2. We know that patients with these mutations, they inherit from their mom and their dad, these germline mutations, there is an increased risk of other cancers. And we're really good now at finding which mutations you someone may have and then preventing those cancers from being developed. Uh, there is uh, colon cancer screening. There's uh, endometrial biopsies or risk-reducing surgery with a hysterectomy for those patients with Lynch syndrome. Uh, there's now pancreatic cancer screening. Uh, that's becoming more focused uh, for patients with BRCA1 and 2. We talk about skin cancer screening because of the risk of melanoma. Uh, there's prostate cancer risk for, for patients. There's breast cancer risk, so mammograms. So I would say I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as morphing into another cancer versus doing the right genetic testing for you, which is the germline genetic testing. And again, places like City Hope, Orange County do this for free for patients. It's not, it's not everybody, but, but you should have that genetic testing. And then if you do test positive, uh, offering it to your family and doing the right risk reducing strategies or screening strategies to prevent those cancers from developing. There are certain cancers that can spread to other parts of the body. Um, for instance, there are pancreatic cancer or, or colon cancer. If it spreads to the ovary, it's called the Krukenberg tumor. And, and that's, again, being aware of, of, of different clinical situations. If I have a patient who has, and I recommend breast cancer screening for patients, just like every OBGYN would, you know, the, you have to still work those lesions up. And if someone has a history of ovarian cancer, you know, that's remote, I would still want to do a breast biopsy, a nodule biopsy. You want to work that up and make sure it's not a new cancer uh, or, or a recurrent cancer. But for the most part, when we talk about other cancers, it's going to be in the context of, of genetic risk for other cancers. Thank you. So, um, just switching gears a little bit and focusing on you, um, what inspires you to do what you do and make you return to work every day? It's the patients. It's the patients. I, I love what I do every day. I think the most important thing that I've, I've learned from my patients and I'm so grateful is that every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. You know, I, we, we, the day is promised to no one, but, but the day is an amazing thing. And you have to say the things that you want to your loved ones. You have to live your life. And uh, I, I, Growing up, I knew I wanted to go into medicine for other reasons. We can talk about another day, uh, but uh, it's something that uh, uh, when I was in medical school, uh, I, I was going to do actually head and neck cancer. I, I, was, I was doing head and neck cancer research at the National Cancer Institute, and I thought, this is what I want to do. Uh, and I did my rotation as an OBGYN and just loved it. I just loved the continuity of care. Um, I love the patient population that you get to work with someone over time. Gynecologic oncology is such a unique field in that we get to do the surgery and the systemic treatment. You know, I love that I that continuity where we, we do a, a cancer debulking surgery with, with, if, and if we need to, bowel resections or whatever we need you to, to get the cancer out. And then we see that patient back two to three weeks later and, and we start their chemotherapy or their immunotherapy. I love that continuity uh, that we have with patients. And that's very unique to gynecologic oncology versus other cancer fields. And, and I love the research side of it. I love being able to work with patients and offer the latest and greatest clinical trials. One of the things that brought me to City of Hope Orange County to be their medical director, which is a new position for me, was the chance to build something really wonderful here and, and, and help. I grew up in this area in Southern California to help really bring that level of, of, of clinical trial expertise to the patient population that maybe was otherwise driving two hours into Los Angeles or another location. So, so really, uh, but it comes down to the patients. I mean, uh, I think we, you know, as a physician, the most important thing we can do is, is work with our patients to help them accomplish their goals. And now we know cancer is tough. Not everybody's gonna be cured. But it's a journey, and and 
if we can play a role in that journey and, and help someone work through that journey in a way that's meaningful for them, that's what we want. That's what I want. And, and so I come to work every day um, to, to try to accomplish that. But I just, I love working with patients. And um, again, every day is a gift for us all. What I tell patients too, is you can't live blood test to blood test. You can't live CT scan to CT scan. You know, it's just, it's just, it's human nature that we do that on some level, but, but life goes on the minutes count, the days count, and, and you still have to enjoy those small moments with your family. Uh, you know, those, the going out and, and doing something with that you enjoy. And that's why you have to balance the toxicities of the treatments with the, the cancer itself. And I get back to that analogy with HIV where, where in cancer, where it's chronic, uh, we can do that. We can find drugs that hopefully have less side effects and, and you can still achieve the goals that you want to in the context of your healthcare. Such a beautiful answer. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. So um, I asked this question to all our episode guests. So uh, what have I missed asking you that you would like to answer? Uh, I think it's uh, really, you know, maybe my, my parting words to patients and I would say and family advocate for yourself. Uh, I, I hinted at this earlier. Um, we we want to work with you as healthcare professionals, but you need to advocate. Healthcare is, is in a way right now where it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to seek out more opinions. It's okay to get more information. That's okay. We want that. We want you to do that. And you should be in a healthcare system or work with providers who are okay with that. Um, and, and I love when patients ask questions. I may not have time at that exact moment to answer all the questions and we find time to do it, but I love when patients ask questions because I want them to be engaged in their care. No matter what the outcome, I really do believe patients feel better about their care if they're actively involved in those decisions. And so I would say advocate for yourself, advocate for your family, seek out those clinical trials with over, Overcome in their database. Um, and and it's, it's okay to, 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 be, to, to, to push your providers a little bit more to help them, to help you understand what's happening with your body and, and to know what treatments are available. And your passion for our overcomers shows in all your uh, responses that you that you just shared with us. So thank you. Um, so just in just in closing, I know you have talked about advocating, but just in general, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience? That uh, we're here for you, that we, we want you to come to your visits uh, with questions that um, we know these are stressful times. No one lives in a vacuum. No one lives in a vacuum and, and we as providers can do a lot, but we also, we need help. We need help from, from support organizations like Overcome. Uh, we need help from our social workers. We need, we need help from our nutritionists. So just know it's a team effort. It's never one provider. It's, it's never one nurse. It's never one family member. This is a journey. And, and depending on your support system, know that we're here for you and we want to build that support system for you. Such a beautiful answer. Thank you, Dr. Cohen. I feel like we could have spent another couple of hours just listening to what, you know, it was so many insights that you shared with us. Thank you so very much. And uh, we will probably bring you back for another episode because with all these advances happening, you know, we need to be in the forefront. And it seems like you are at the forefront with all the research and advances happening at the, at the wonderful City of Hope. So thank you um, for being our guest today. And Overcomers, hope this was beneficial for you. I know, as I always say, we learn so much from these uh, episode guests and experts that come to you, come to us to share freely their invaluable knowledge. So we'll be back with the next episode of Connective Work Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.